This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Jonathan Moore discusses his new novel, The Night Market. Then PW senior correspondent Claire Kirk reports from Winter Institute. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by NPD BookScan. Well, so Fire and Fury continues to be fiery and furious, uh, sold 324,000 copies this week, yeah. which is about uh, certainly more than double of what it did last week. Yeah, uh, it impressed. seems like it's been selling, uh, this is the third week on the bestseller list, and every week it's selling more than the previous. So um, uh, so it's really <laughs> it's really doing well. And I, I just want to say on the nonfiction side, I mean, that along with those, uh, with that book, and this is uh, the week leading up to the first anniversary of uh, uh, Trump's inauguration, there's, there's quite a few books, um, actually every new book on, on the uh, bestseller list is and somehow you know, somehow related to uh, the Trump administration. Number two, it's even worse than you think what the Trump administration is doing to America by David K. Johnson. And you can pretty much tell what that book is about. Then we have Together We Rise, Behind the Scenes at the Protest Heard Around the World. Um, and this is from the uh, uh, Condé Nast publicist, and it's from the Women's March uh, organizers. And that's at number three. At number six, Trumpocracy, The Corruption of the American Republic by David Frum. He's the author of The Right Man. He's the uh, senior editor at The Atlantic. And here uh, he charts the erosion of democratic principles over the course of Donald Trump's campaign in his first year in office. And, and along the way, he enumerates both the president's own improprieties and the misdeeds of his various advisors and hangers on. Uh, and, and that's and that's at number six. And finally, at uh, number 18, How uh, Democracies Die by Stephen Levitsky. And this is a, a, a look at the demise of liberal democracies around the world and uh, what, this, what they say is a roadmap to rescuing our own. And so every book, every debut on there is um, political current events related. So this is interesting because over the last while we'd seen a lot of books from the right, from the conservative side, uh, hitting the bestseller list. And I'd been wondering why yeah. there were not so many from the left. And it sounds like they were all being held for this week. <laughs> Seems as if. <laughs> so a, exactly, lot, of, a yeah. lot of editors and publicists yep. had the same idea. Well, we have a lot less homogeneity over on the fiction side. Uh, at number two, we have City of Endless Night by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child. Uh, this is the 17th entry in their best-selling series about Aloysius Pendergast, an eccentric FBI agent with expensive tastes. Um, these are basically Preston and Child write thrillers. These have the additional dimension of having a lot of fancy 
things in them, mm-hmm. fancy cars mm-hmm. and fancy foods and so forth. Right. Um, and uh, in, in this case, uh, Pendergast is teaming up with his loyal NYPD ally, Lieutenant Commander Vincent D'Agosta, to uh, track a killer who beheads his victims. Uh, we say that this is a pretty lackluster entry in the best-selling series, and though the the minimization of Pendergast's complex backstory makes this entry more accessible to newcomers. Our review says the authors fail to generate their usual high level of suspense, but that certainly hasn't stopped it reaching a high level on the bestseller list. Right below it, at number three, Iron Gold, Red Rising Saga number four by Pierce Brown. We thought there were only three books in the Red Rising mm. Saga, but they did so well, I guess, that oh, uh, wow. Brown decided to come out with a fourth one. And uh, it's not clear to me whether this actually wraps up the series or there's going to be more to come. Uh, this is a science fiction series about a very divided society uh, in, in the far future and uh, what happens when someone tries to overthrow the whole thing. He finds out that it's mm. a little more complicated than he thought. Uh, number 15 is Munich by Robert Harris. Uh, in the 1938 Munich peace negotiations form the backdrop for uh, what we call a very intelligent novel, uh, which presents the diplomatic give and take through the perspectives of two friends who have fallen out of touch. Uh, Oxford schoolmates, uh, one of whom is in uh, the diplomatic service for the UK and the other of whom serves as a translator for the German foreign ministry. Uh, we say that Harris succeeds in not only transforming a familiar historical event into a novel of suspense, but in making the derided Neville Chamberlain sympathetic. Hmm. And they announced a 100,000 copy first printing for this title. Um, it's uh, sold just under 5,000 copies its first week out, so chugging along. And finally, down at number 19, The Largesse of the Sea Maiden by Dennis Johnson. Uh, we gave this a starred review, uh, saying the second story collection from the late Johnson is a masterpiece of deep humanity and astonishing prose. And uh, our review goes on uh, quite at length. There's um, a number of really intense, incredible stories in here. And uh, we say this book is an instant classic. It's filled with Johnson's unparalleled ability to inject humor, profundity, and beauty into the dark and the mundane alike. And uh, that's what we've got on the hardcover fiction list. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Jonathan Moore tells us about crime and investigation in a dark, rainy, near-future San Francisco. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Peter Manso, author of The Apparitionists, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Jonathan Moore on the line. His new book is The Night Market. Hi, Jonathan. So glad you could join us. Hi. Thank you for having me. So your novel takes place in San Francisco of the near future. And because of um, ocean current changes, there's this continuous rain. Take us there. Set the scene for us. Well, so as, as you said, it's in the near future in, in San Francisco, and it takes place approximately 60 years out from the present day. And the city is, as much as it is today, it's it's beautiful and opulent in some areas and run down and, and incredibly poverty-stricken in others. Uh, but in, in this novel, it's carried to a, a far greater extreme on each end than, than you would see in San Francisco today. So the, the rich are much richer and the poor have literally nothing and are reduced to stealing even bricks to, to trade for food. 
A lot of San Francisco futures posit an earthquake. Uh, that's sort of what we think of as, as a major destructive force in the Bay Area. Why did you go with rain? Uh, largely because I, I lived in San Francisco when I was in college, and I don't know if it was a, a freak weather occurrence for the three years that I was there, but it seemed like every time I stepped out the door, it was raining. And and so when I think of San Francisco, I think of this this dark and cold place where it never stops raining. And, and when I visit San Francisco these days, and I'm no longer in college and, and no longer prone to college depression, I noticed that it's actually a beautiful, sunny city much of the time. But when I visit it as a writer in my mind, I always seem to go back to that, that image of it like that. So you've got you've got this almost perpetual rain falling. So it's a little bit dark, I assume. Um, and, and the book opens when Detective uh, Ross Carver and his partner Cleve Jenner uh, answer a late night call in in what seems to be one of the wealthier neighborhoods. Um, wh- what's going on there? Uh, they have received they they've received a nine one one call. Uh, from a woman who was looking out her bedroom window and saw a man across the street and beating on the glass of his bedroom window and leaving bloody handprints on it and screaming. Uh, when when my main character, Ross Carver, arrives on the scene, some patrol officers have already been to the house and they've gone upstairs and find a dead body. Now, the, this dead body was the person who was seen just moments before beating on the glass and the the officers on the scene describe him to Carver as looking like he's been cooked and eaten. So Carver goes into this house knowing that something is deeply amiss. Is there a paranormal aspect to this novel? There, there's no paranormal aspect, but but there there are certainly science fiction elements that weave into the story. When when I wrote it, I was thinking that that the ideally a reader would come away feeling as if he or she had just read a novel that had been co-written by Raymond Chandler and Philip K. Dick. Mm-hmm. So tell us who who is Ross Carver. Ross Carver is a San Francisco homicide inspector, uh, and he is described in the novel as being the oldest homicide inspector still alive on the force. Uh, so he, he's a, a seasoned professional and probably one of the last people remaining on, on the San Francisco police force in this, in this time who's still a, a cop dedicated to protecting the city and the citizens and and a lot of his fellow officers have probably lost their way somewhat and one of the people he meets is mia westcott who is she and uh, what is their connection well he he meets her for the first time really in the novel shortly after after his uh encounter at the house with the dead body and he's pulled out of that house by hazmat suited FBI agents who take him to a decontamination trailer and tell him he's been exposed to a disease and after decontaminating him they knock him unconscious Mm. he wakes up a few days later with with no memory of that event and he's in his own bed and the woman that he knows is his next door neighbor is in his room reading to him 
and he's never actually spoken to this woman before. He's just seen her in the hallway in his apartment. So he has no understanding of why she's there or why he's in bed and why he feels so ill. And so he has this relationship that develops with her through the book that's deeply mistrustful from the beginning, but he has this inclination always to keep her close because he figures that she she knows something and he doesn't know if she's helpful or dangerous, but he wants to be close to her so that he can keep tabs on her. So I'm definitely getting that, that Raymond Chandler vibe. What is it about noir fiction that uh, that appealed to you, that made you want to write this this noir story? That, that's a good question. I, I'm I'm not sure. I think part of it is just the I, I love the the tones and almost the the palette of noir. If you think of it as being a painting instead of a book, it would be this you know dark and, and shadowy painting where where things are defined more by shadows than by the light that falls on them. And and so I I, I you know I actually reference paintings quite a lot in a lot of my books because I'm I'm jealous of painters. They have so much talent and it's readily apparent what their artwork is um and so i i i guess i i like noir fiction because of the the tones and the textures that it allows you to play with and the way that you can use uh you know a high speed page turning story to get it at aspects of human nature that that i like to explore what are some of those aspects of human nature? What, what drives people to to do dark things? What what drives people to stick together? Um, you know, what is loyalty? What is fear? So tell us more about this San Francisco sixty years from now. I mean, you've got electric cars. Um, what and and you've got a a. a a city that is divided, as you said, the extreme wealth and the extreme poor. Um, have the, uh, the the Silicon Valley people left, <laughs> or are they still there? What's happened here? The, the Silicon Valley people are still there. I think there's there's reference in the in the novel to to Silicon Valley kind of having stagnated with with no new great advances, and so there there are references to to a few high tech things for example the the police all carry infrared scanners that allow them to to kind of see through walls and and you know register by heat signatures through the walls of buildings and things that you know could exist but don't don't at the moment but there's there's no major technology in the book that that would stand out as science fiction. There's no spaceships or ray guns or anything like that, except for for the one thing that's kind of at the heart of the conspiracy. And the the landscape of San Francisco in this book is, is dominated by consumerism. And so, you know, there's there's the very rich and the very poor, but they're all united in in an almost slave-like desire to to obtain the latest thing um, and it, basically any worthless product might suddenly catch everyone's attention and become a fad that's that's so compelling that it, it creates almost like a brand cult and so so it's it's that backdrop that, that frames the story when 
when we first meet the detective Ross Carver, he's pulled to the side of the road because he sees a billboard advertising a perfume, and and he's just so drawn to this billboard that he gets out of his car and walks into the middle of the intersection, just staring at the billboard and. You know, he doesn't wear perfume. He hasn't had a girlfriend in years, has nobody to give perfume to. And yet there he is just standing out in the rain, staring slack-jawed at this billboard. And and that's that's the world he lives in. And it hasn't really even occurred to him at the beginning of the novel that there's anything wrong with that. So now we're getting the Philip K. Dick elements. And tell us a little bit about the the science fiction traditions that you're drawing from. Though we reviewed this as a mystery, and it's it still sounds more to me like a a mystery with a science fictional setting than a science fiction novel with a mystery in it. Though I suppose it could go either way. I, I guess it could go either way. I, I think of it more as a a mystery with a science fiction element to it, um, as P.W. did. Um, so yes, there there is there is science fiction, and and I don't I don't want to drop a whole bunch of spoilers in here. Of but, course, but there, there is a a science fiction explanation for why people are behaving in the way they are, and and why mass numbers of people will turn out for the launch party of a new perfume, or or you know everybody will buy the same shirt on the same day of the new new dress shirts release and that type of thing. So there, there is a science fiction element here, but the heart of the story is a mystery and, and following Ross Carver as he delves into his own life and, and kind of wakes up to the world around him. I do have to say, sounds a lot like what my 12-year-old is uh, with these uh, drops of basketball shoes and his friends uh, trying to get online to buy them uh, in order to sell them and make money. I mean, it seems like, and I want to know what the, what the reason is for that, uh, but it sounds very familiar to uh, what, uh, what's happening in Ross Carver's San Francisco 60 years from now. Yeah, certainly there... I, far be it for me to to claim to have anything important to say about society, but I, I, I guess I I did try and have a little social commentary here on where things are headed, and and you know I don't I don't know if there's any way to stop us from getting to the future that it seems like we're headed towards, but at least we can try and get ourselves ready for it if that's where we're really going. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Jonathan Moore, author of The Night Market. So what what is The Night Market of the title of the book? If that's not giving too much away. It, it's it's not. Um, it, you know, authors and publishers never agree on titles. So this, <laughs> is, this is my fifth book and, and uh, my fifth book to have been submitted under a different title than it actually comes out under. Um, 
and so we we went back and forth on the title and and eventually we settled on the night market and to me the the title is you know kind of evokes the the thought of of just dark things for for sale and and the the consumerism and 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 desire for a long time before I went to law school, I lived in Taiwan, and and in Asia they have these wonderful night markets that that open up late at night and like an empty lot in the middle of the city, and and they have you know the merchants bring out their generators and they string lights up and they have all these little booths and you can buy anything from fried dog to to games and toys and 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 it's you know kind of like a a carnival atmosphere and 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 they're fun but they're also to me as a as a foreigner in Taiwan they were very strange uh, and so it, I guess the title to me kind of harkens back to those night markets and and just the, the tantalizing things offered for sale in the dark. You know, you, I'm. You're getting me to think. You 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 you've lived in the the, the east. Uh, lived in San Francisco. Um, currently, if I'm not mistaken, you live in Hawaii. Um, but your 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 books, such as uh, uh, this one, The Dark Room, and uh, The Poison Artist, all are set in San Francisco, albeit with different different atmospheres. It seems, um, and, and we say in in our review that you make good use of the Bay Area. What is importance of settings to you in your books? And you could go ahead and talk about the previous ones as well. Um, certainly, setting setting is very important, and and I mean, it may be kind of a cliche to say that that in some novels the setting itself becomes a character. Um, and I I think it's true for my novels. I I love San Francisco, but I also have kind of a love hate relationship with San Francisco. I mentioned that when I lived there before, I found it to be dark and rainy and cold, and and you know I was always getting dumped, and so I was always depressed, and and I was a student, so I was broke, so I couldn't do any of the fun things that there are to do in San Francisco, and now I I'm an attorney living in Honolulu, and I have to go back to San Francisco quite a lot for business, and so I'm, you know, coming from a very different perspective. I I do have the money to go out and do things, and I I'm not depressed, and so I can go out and and see all that's on offer, and and so I I think of San Francisco as kind of uh, a city of of two faces, and it's it's got this beautiful light side that's full of splendid architecture and beautiful museums and great art and great restaurants and and just a thriving cultural scene and it's also San Francisco is has an enormous homeless population and and uh, you know it's the one place I've ever been where you can see uh, a guy in a Lamborghini waiting at a red light and somebody crossing the street in front of him in the rain who literally owns nothing but an old ratty blanket, like not even clothes or shoes. And, you know, I, I think we should all find that strange. And I, I worry that, that we're becoming numb to sites like that. And, and that it's, that was something that I wanted to kind of highlight in in this book. 
So as you mentioned, you went to law school. Um, you've also worked as an investigator for a criminal defense attorney in D.C. How did that affect your writing about crime and investigation? I, well, it's, it certainly didn't hurt it. I, in in uh, in working on the, as an investigator in D.C., one thing that I learned is that that um, high tech investigations and and uh, great solutions aren't usually present in most in most criminal investigations and you have you know a, a bunch of people who are all on drugs who are, are testifying in exchange for you know a better deal on their own prosecutions and so the the results that i was seeing in the dc court system were all in my opinion highly suspect um that comes with the big caveat that I was working for a defense attorney. Of course. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, you know, what, what I didn't see was, you know, this sort of image that you get on, on, you know, the CSI TV shows where, where the investigators are these, these incredibly well-dressed, good-looking people who are using the latest and best technology to solve crimes in the best way they possibly can uh, in beautiful labs and and that sort of thing and and you, what I've found is that if you go into a your average city's medical examiner's office and I've talked my way into a few you're in this basement somewhere with open drains on the floor with cockroaches running in and out of them and they're doing the the uh, autopsies literally with tools that they bought at Home Depot like hedge trimmers um, and and so I, I I try and and put details like that into my book to kind of ground ground the thing in reality so that you can believe in in the other things that I'm setting into the plot. So you're clearly very passionate about uh, income inequality, about uh, poverty, about fairness. Um, are those themes that you feel you're going to continue exploring in your work? I I think probably. I mean, I don't I don't pretend to be writing social novels. I want to write novels that people want to read. But but you know, on the other hand, I'm not going to write a novel that that goes against any of my own values just because it you know it's probably not going to accidentally happen. But um, but yeah, the, I I'm certainly aware when I'm writing a book that that people are going to read it and it's going to stand out there for a long time. So I want to make sure that the book uh, is something that that I'm going to want to answer to 20 years from now. We've been talking with Jonathan Moore, and you can find his book, The Night Market, in stores right now. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW senior correspondent Clara Kurt talks about Winter Institute. Stay tuned. I'm Armistead Maupin, the author of the memoir Logical Family, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW senior correspondent Claire Kirk is here to tell us all about Winter Institute. Hi, Claire. Hi, Mark and Rose. It's great to talk with you. It's always nice to have you on the show. Tell us what's happening down in Memphis. 
Oh my gosh, it is it is really um, an incredible week for the booksellers. Uh, Winter Institute, which is, uh, this is the 13th year. It, this is Winter Institute 13. And it is also, the, uh, it, there have been a lot of changes this year. But booksellers are rolling with it, and they're very pleased with how things are going. Uh, it, it's larger than ever before. There are 685 booksellers. Wow. Yeah. And it's funny because the first Winter Institute I went to was in New Orleans and it was Winter Institute seven and, uh, it was capped at 500 booksellers. Wow. So yeah, it's, it's, and last year, it, I think they had 600 booksellers here last year in Minneapolis. And that, so this year, you know, it's growing, it's growing. And, um, there's uh, the 685 booksellers include 60 foreign booksellers from across the pond, and uh, one fourth of the booksellers here this year are first timers. And there's another significant um, change in this year's uh, Winter Institute. In the past, it was always held in a conference hotel, and of course there'd be a few overflow hotels. For the first time, Winter Institute is too large mm. for a hotel. And so for the first time, it's being held at the Sheraton downtown Memphis, which is connected to the Memphis Convention Center. So most of the events are actually taking, taking place at the uh, Memphis Convention Center, which is really interesting because it, it, inevitably changes the dynamics of the conference because you have so many more booksellers. You have many more overflow hotels. There are six hotels, conference hotels this year. And then you have the, the, the site of the conference being in a convention center mm-hmm. rather than in the uh, hotel conference rooms and in the bar, hotel bar. And, and so it's really, it's a different dynamic, but the booksellers are all connecting with each other and uh, they're continuing conversations that began last year in Minneapolis at Winter Institute 12. So and we're doing it all within sight of the Mississippi River. I'm looking out at the Mississippi River from my hotel room. Uh, how nice at the Winter Winter Institute this year is in a slightly warmer place in Minneapolis. Um, and the Winter is- Institute is has always been a place where the buzz uh, about a book uh, uh, for the next season starts building. What's the buzz there? What's going on there? What's the talk? Well, this is interesting. With I asked some booksellers I trust what what the buzz books are and usually at at the last uh, this is my sixth winter institute usually there's like one or two books that everybody is talking about and this year it's much more maybe because it is a larger group of booksellers from uh, a greater uh, a variety of places, as well as a more diverse group of booksellers. It, it's actually very interesting, the the transformation of booksellers in terms of, as uh, Oren Tyker said, the, the complexion of booksellers has been changing. They're younger. They're definitely more multicultural. And I think it's reflected in such a, a variety of, of hot books. Uh, a lot of the children's books are the ones that people are really uh, jumping for. There's one author that I've heard a lot about. Her name is Tomi 
Adeyami, and her novel is Children of Blood and Bone, and it's a YA novel from Holt. And a lot of people are talking about that one, as well as Oliver Jeffers. Okay, you know who Oliver Jeffers is. He's the one who wrote The Day the uh, Crayons Quit. Mm-hmm. And uh, Drew DeWalt was the illustrator. And Oliver Jeffers's uh, latest picture book is Here We Are, Notes for Living on Planet Earth. And he had one of the longest lines of booksellers watching that book last night. And uh, in, on the adult side, uh, Mario Giordano, who lives in Berlin, he wrote Antipoldi and the Sicilian Lions. And that seemed to get a lot of booksellers excited. And also um, the star of uh, one of the stars from The Sopranos has become an author. He's being published by Akashek, the Brooklyn Small Press. Um, Michael Imperioli, I can't remember who he played on the on the Sopranos, mm. but he wrote a novel called The Perfume Burned His Eyes, and he too had a long line of booksellers wanting wanting to meet him and get his book. Oh, and actually, uh, the last one that a lot of people seem to be talking about, and it has probably the best title, is How to Be a Bourbon Badass which is uh, by Linda Ruffinock, and uh, it's published by Red Lightning Books, which is an imprint of Indiana University Press. So there's just, there's just a, a, a really, there's not one single book that booksellers are jazzed about. And one of my bookseller friends, uh, Pamela Klinger Horn from Excelsior Bay Books in Minnesota, she tells me that she's just, collecting all the books and then she'll just sort through them when she gets home because they all look so fabulous. So are there a lot of galleys being handed out? Because I know that a thing we've talked about regarding Book Expo over the last several years is a real decline in the amount of freebies that publishers were willing to get out for a while. Budgets were tight. There was more of a focus on digital and um, there were just fewer and fewer and fewer advanced copies. So uh, it sounds like people are still getting heaps of books down there. Yeah, you know, in fact... I started attending uh, Book Expo when it was still called the uh, the ABA in the early 90s. And Winter Institute is what the ABA show used to be, where it was tons of galleys and just people were talking about the books. And it wasn't just spectacle and celebrities, even though we did have a celebrity here this week. But um, there's this huge room full of galleys. And they used to lock it up uh, during this, uh, certain times of the day when the speakers were speaking so that people would not just sit in the galley room and not go hear the speakers. <laughs> but now they just gave up. They just gave up. The galley room is open 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. And it's truly a sight to behold. It is uh, in a, a, a ballroom, a small ballroom, but a ballroom nevertheless with this glorious view of the Mississippi River. And it's it's hard to leave that galley room. And it's hard to um it it's really funny to see the booksellers, their attention is all on the galleys. And meanwhile they're not even looking out the window at the Mississippi River. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's definitely a, um it's it's still a show where it's all about discovering 
these um, unknown uh, voices, these uh, emerging voices, and um, getting the galleys into the hands of booksellers, and 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 uh, also introducing these these new voices to the booksellers. There's a lot of dinners and parties in the evenings and uh, other kinds of gatherings, and that's what it's kind of interesting. The booksellers are really they seem to be talking more about the authors they're discovering this this year than about the books themselves. It's about the conversations with these interesting authors. Well, that sounds very exciting, Claire. We're going to let you get back to it, but thank you so much for making your report. And uh, we look forward to seeing your write-up in PW once you're back up north. Great. Okay. Well, uh, thanks so much for talking with me and have a good afternoon yourself. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another in-depth author interview. And we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 